From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Timothy Shafford, whose new book, The Perfume Thief, is out now wherever you get books. They did still make music. They did still make art. They did still commit to the day-to-day of it, you know. So I can sit here and think, oh, well, how could they have just gone on with their lives when their neighbors were being arrested or, you know, people were being taken out of the city and, uh, or, and losing their property and... and but then you think, well, we do it today. You know, there are horrible things going on in the world and in our own country. And nonetheless, we we want to to be compassionate, but at the same time, um, there's only so much pain and agony that we can fully absorb. We talk about historical fiction that's relevant to today's anxieties, Nebraska's art scene, and Shaffert's take on becoming a good writer. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. You're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Timothy Shaffert, professor and author of the new book, The Perfume Thief, which is available wherever you get books. The Perfume Thief follows Clementine, a 72-year-old con artist in Nazi-occupied France surrounded by outsiders, artists, and hustlers who are all disappearing as she attempts to pull off one last scheme when recruited to steal the recipe book of a now-missing famous Parisian perfumer. Shafford's previous books include The Swan Gondola, The Coffins of Little Hope, Devils in the Sugar Shop, The Singing and Dancing Daughters of God, and The Phantom Limbs of the Rollo Sisters. Here is our conversation. All right, well, Timothy, thank you. Congratulations on having another book come out. Although it comes out, what, in the uh, first week of August, right? That's right. That's got to be exciting. How long have you been working on it for? Oh, wow. Well, so I guess a couple of years, I... Uh, took a couple of years after I worked with the editor pretty closely. Well, I, I wondered how the uh, the real life drama, just the craziness of the last few years, maybe played in because there seems like even though it is historical fiction, there's certainly some uh, some contemporary anxieties maybe coming through. Was, was that something that helped put you in the right mindset to write a book like this? Um, I started it, I guess, probably I don't even remember now, maybe 2016 or 17, and and so I, I was certainly conscious of the conflicts in the world and um and and so that did some of that did find its way into the story but i really did try to commit fully to 1941 paris and i spent a lot of time reading newspaper articles and books on the period and uh you know old copies of vogue magazine and so just to try to get a complete sense and really immerse myself in that world and so i was really intent on uh recreating that particular period and it, the parallels are are somewhat coincidental really or i guess nothing's coincidental but it, is, it, it 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 maybe that's the parallels were what brought me to the research to begin with but, but it wasn't this was not designed as like a statement on trump or something like that oh no no not at all. <laughs> well it's funny to see how you know like we're kind of at the point where you can see how uh you know, the the four years of Trump and kind of like that specific stress that a lot of people felt under him, it's starting to make its way into some of the fiction and movies because well, a lot of it as, you know, during that presidency was sort of like holdover stuff that was being finished or worked on during the Obama presidency and just kind of like the world felt a little bit different, I think, once we got 2016, 2017 on. Oh, for sure. And then, uh, and then also the parallels to COVID ultimately and the deprivations that were, uh, the people are suffering in Paris and uh, the, the very cold winter in 1941, and, and so the, it, some of that, of course, happened. It was happening after I finished the book, but I was in the process of revising it, and so it was. It, it was, yeah, it was c- curious to, <laughs> to see some of these these elements reflected in the book. Yeah, well, so so it, you know, one of the things that's always kind of interesting is. Uh, there's sort of like the stereotypical Nebraska fiction and whether that's in terms of like books or movies where you kind of have like the Alexander Payne sort of like wry approach to the Midwest. And this is different. And uh, you know, I, I previously interviewed Ted Wheeler, who's doing historical oh, sure. fiction. And oh, I guess his newest one was not. Um, and uh, David Phil Mullins, who teaches at Creighton, he had another one. It's just like these are not exact. I mean, they're, they're, sometimes there's Nebraska elements, but they don't feel like when we think of like what's a Nebraska story. Right. right? But so you are from Nebraska originally, right? Yeah, I grew up on a farm in central Nebraska, just outside of Aurora. How was that? Uh, <laughs> well, I grew up during the 70s and the 80s. And so, um, I mean, I loved the farm. I wasn't a terribly good farm worker. <laughs> I'd get lost in my imagination a lot. But um, so, yeah, so I, but I, I loved the, 
the solitude, I guess, and because I loved drawing, I loved reading, I loved writing, and and um, yeah, and so it's it, it's it, it, I guess it was kind of unexpected. You wouldn't expect to be um, perhaps that fertile of an imaginative space, but um, but I think I thrived in that regard. Did your parents want you to do farm work and like take over the farm or anything? You know, I don't remember <laughs> conversations along those lines. I don't really think so. I mean, I, d- I just was not terribly helpful. I mean, I would get chores and tasks and such and and would usually just sort of wander <laughs> away, I think. But, I mean, there can have been a lot of people in Aurora who were thinking, like, I'm going to be uh, a person who's going to have hardcover books come out, you know, and this will, you know, kind of like a, even about sort of this artsy world. So, I mean, what did you think you wanted to do when you were on that farm thinking and dreaming? Well, you know, it's funny because actually in my high school, I I was in the drama club, and and we took we had theater classes, and and we wrote plays and put them on, and and we had a literary journal that we put together, and so there was a really rich uh, um, experience in terms of, of, especially in high school, and and even uh, in elementary school, I had teachers who really stressed reading and writing and stories, and and so it, um, so I I don't know that it seemed particularly foreign to me, but I didn't have, I mean, I grew up as pretty much as far away from either coast as I yeah. possibly could. So it was a culture that I did have to learn more about uh, when I went to college. And So you were starting a literary journal? Did you? Did, were you one of the people who actually started that? No, it was actually, I think uh, his name was Mr. Shano, and he had, <laughs> uh, I, I think it was called the M Street Odyssey, because the high school was on M Street, and so uh, that the, I, I think they put it out every year for a while. So. so what were some of the things you were reading that were really impacting you? Uh, you know, the funny thing is I read a lot of uh, picture books when I was a kid growing up and read a lot of comic books, and so I was really fascinated with the connection between text and an image. And I think that that informed the kinds of books that I sought out too, the books that were highly descriptive. And so when I was in college, I was totally in love with the modernists, with William Faulkner and Virginia Woolf, and, and in which they created these worlds that were quite vivid, but they also incorporated a high level of poetry in their language that I found uh, kind of transcendent. Did you feel a kinship with Willa Cather, who also was growing up in sort of rural Nebraska? Okay. You know, the funny thing is I read one book of hers when I was in high school called A Lost Lady. And I was going to – it was very – I think it's because it was slim. I picked, I think we had to pick a book off the shelf, and that was a, a pretty quick read. But it, she references the town I grew up in in the book. And I remember feeling that that was a kind of profound moment of – to find this author who was recognized around the world and, and whose work was considered literature talking about the places that I knew. But it was just the one book. You didn't do like a deep dive into Cather. To Not at that point. Book. No, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've read a little bit more since. But <laughs> <laughs> but then you you did go to UNL, right? I did. Okay, mm-hmm. so I mean, you, that's kind of like the hub of people studying Willa Cather. Oh it? yes, yes. There's the the Cather archives, and so yeah, there's there's some of the top scholars have have got, and and really the English department that I work in was responsible for kind of rescuing Cather from the verge of falling out of favor, you know, or, or they really established her, her legacy at a, at a time when she, her work was kind of, you know, it wasn't as popular. It wasn't, she didn't have the legacy of Hemingway or, or Fitzgerald, even though they were both writers that were her contemporaries. So. Yeah, well, so, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about that you sort of think that these authors who are still influential decades, centuries later, it just sort of happens on its own. You don't necessarily think that that has to be sort of protected yeah. And established. Yeah, no, and at the in the English department, we were also the first program to introduce an interdisciplinary LGBTQ course in uh, 1970. And so we're looking at 50 years since that. It was supposed to happen last year, but then COVID uh, shut us down. But so I've been researching a lot about the history of, of the department and its relationship to LGBTQ studies. And Two of the leading figures, two of the people who really established Cather scholarship, were a lesbian couple that were not having it. They weren't going to discuss the. They, they weren't interested in lesbian scholarship. They weren't going to entertain it. They weren't going to give access. And so, out of a kind of, I think, determination to protect her legacy and their fear of what what it might mean if people knew that she had 
you know, 40-year relationship with Edith Lewis. Well, yeah, and you just did an event with uh, Melissa Homestead about her book about yes. that, didn't you? Yeah, yes, she has a great book about that. <laughs> so much there. So, I mean, okay, when you go to UNL, though, did you have any idea that you wanted to write professionally? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think okay. I always knew I wanted to write or, or draw, or, or, and I was interested in the arts and creativity. And, uh, and so, but I, I think I started in journalism, and so okay. I, I was going to go into advertising, I think, based on years of watching Bewitched, I think, <laughs> and Darren Stevens and the ad agency. And, <laughs> and so, but then I studied with Jerry Shapiro and Judy Slater, who were uh, creative writing teachers at the time, and I loved their classes, and they were very encouraging, and I learned a lot more about the possibilities in terms of writing fiction. I learned about literary magazines, and and I learned about the processes and the business, and so I was able to commit to it in a way that I hadn't before. So journalism was kind of exciting at that point, right? I mean, you had a lot of sort of rock star journalists doing important things. You, you, you swayed away from that? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. <laughs> it's, uh, I started in news editorial, and then and it was, it was a really demanding program at the time, and I just didn't know if I, you know, I, I was still wandering away from my work like I did when I was a kid. I was still getting uh, caught up in my imagination. And so when I started taking these, these creative writing classes, I really felt like, well, no, this is really what I want to be doing. So at that point, was I mean, you said you were uh, inspired by the modernists. Were there other things that were sort of like contemporary writers at the time that you were really uh, you know obsessed with or interested in? Well, I did. Uh, I ended up going to the University of Arizona for a master's of fine arts, and I studied with Joy Williams there, and she was a writer that I liked a lot. And uh, and of course, this is also the period of the what they call the literary brat pack. So it was like Jay McInerney, Bright Lights, Big City, and Brett Easton Ellis and Tama Janowitz. And, and so even though I didn't necessarily think that, you know, didn't really necessarily take to their work or, or recognize anything modernist about it, I was always kind of excited by their personalities and, and the work they were doing and their portraits of New York City and all of that. Yeah, so, I mean, did you buy into some of that nostalgia about New York that's so prevalent in a lot of areas of literary, of American literary, uh, you know, culture? Absolutely. Yeah, I loved New York. I lived there for a real brief time. Um, but it was, it, it's it's tough, too. I run away from anything that's tough is the theme that I'm kind of gathering here. But, um, but yeah, I love New York. I love its history. And, and, and that becomes that's part of the perfume thief, too, since there are the chapters said in 1890s Manhattan. Uh, so that was another fun aspect of the of, of the job of writing the book was reading through those uh, archival news, newspapers and the, the New York Times and getting a sense of the city uh, in the 1890s. Yeah, I mean, you say you, you run away from things that are tough, but write, writing fiction is tough. <laughs> so you, I mean, it's just like there's there's something about different types of difficulty <laughs> that maybe you like or don't like. But like to sit there with the blank page, I imagine every time it's tough. It can be. I mean, I do. Tr- I mean, some, some writing instructors will tell you that you should always, like, every day you sit down and write, whether you want to or not. You just need to, to, to get stuff out there. And uh, I find that I just really like to write when I feel like it. And so and when I feel like it, then I can really write a lot, basically. And so, and, and I, don't know what that, I don't know what that entails exactly. I don't know, what, you know, I guess when you feel inspired or, or, or you've had a good breakfast. Or I don't know what it exactly it is exactly, or all your chemicals are in balance in the right way. But um, and so eventually, you end up with material. I mean, and the hard part actually is is kind of going back in and making it all work. I mean, when you're when you're be feeling creative and when you're uh, writing in a certain direction, then that can be very fulfilling and and imaginative and and kind of rich, almost playful experience. But then. At some point, you do have to start thinking about the reader and the business, and who's going to read it and who's going to publish it, and and so and then and then and then you have an editor who also has uh, their own ideas of things, and uh, and and so trying to make all the various things work the way they need to work can be a real puzzle. Did you start with short stories? You know, I think I wrote a novel in. Um, uh, high school. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, I think I started, and then I, I, I think I started one, and then stopped, and then started a different one. How far did you get in high school? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I can't remember because I think I went to college with a big share of a book written, and then I, I rewrote it, and then 
uh, I rewrote it. I, I spent several years writing <laughs> and rewriting that book until finally I decided maybe it'd be better to start something else. <laughs> but so, I mean, so you had this discipline and this seriousness, and you were willing to put in the hours to get that far in a book, even in high school. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, again, it's just kind of it was a a, a place of comfort, a place of. Um, it, indulgence almost uh, to be able to sit down with a, a piece of paper whether to write or to draw and um, and so I, I I liked losing myself in all of that what was it about the, the book yeah <laughs> well, the the one I think the one was about people in high school okay it was it was so you were losing yourself in something that was still fairly autobiographical <laughs> right, right. Um, and then I, I then I wrote one set in um, 1947 for some reason but oh, wow. I didn't okay. I don't know why I picked that I, th- I loved old movies and so I was really um, uh, that, that whole kind of sepia-toned countryside that yeah. I wanted to try to capture so I, I started an all about a guy in a, a little town in the, the rural Midwest. This this was one that you wrote after the high school one. After you started being, okay, so you were in college <laughs> at this point, right? right. So wait, so you came in to college with some portion of a book written, and then you at first were still thinking, "I'm going to go to journalism." <laughs> right. You still to be persuaded. Yeah, I guess I didn't think that there would be a job of, yeah. as a writer. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if it, if you're a journalist, you're still writing, but you're also getting a paycheck. And mm-hmm. so I was really conscious of that until I finally decided, "Eh, who needs a job?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what, I mean, what was that struggle like that? I know you said you did the master's program. I mean, at some point you just decided, okay, I'm going to have to teach in addition to doing my writing? I think they had that in mind. I mean, I was really inspired, uh, like I said, by Jerry and Judy, my mentors, when I was in college. And that's what they had done. They got master's of fine arts, and then they went into teaching. Now, at that time, the the programming was fairly new. And so there were a lot of new MFA programs and creative writing programs opening up across the country. But uh, that kind of at some point, all those jobs got taken up, you know, and the and the the field stopped growing, and so, um, and so it became more competitive to get those those jobs. And for the time, and I think, I, so I finished my MFA program in 1994, I believe, and my first book didn't come out until 2002. So that was quite a number of years of of doing other things and chipping away at the work and developing my writing. So those other things were those like other jobs and just kind of living. So you had something to write about. Yeah, well, it was um, it was mostly just uh, I, I write mostly from imagination. I just make stuff up, so I don't draw too much from personal experience. But I um, I did I, I, you know I um, and yeah I, I did a lot of freelance actually. So anything that I could do that would allow me to write that I, which I felt was my talent and make some money off of it. So I wrote like. Uh, career guides for a long time, which is somewhat ironic because I didn't really have a career <laughs> myself. But I wrote career guides for the high school library market, and I wrote um, I wrote college brochures, and I did some advertising here and there. And eventually, I worked for uh, a couple of alternative weeklies in Omaha too. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Timothy Shafford about his new book, The Perfume Thief, which is available wherever you get books. And so the first book then, what was the process of actually getting it published? Um, well, I, I knew I needed to find an agent, a literary agent. And so um, – and, and sometimes when I – because I was publishing some short stories in literary journals and sometimes I would hear from an agent uh, – asking if I had a novel, and like, I sure do, and send it that way, and then they send it back, you know? <laughs> and this is back in the day when, I mean, email existed, but the publishing industry was kind of slow to get on board with that, so a lot, so everything was can, you know, sent through the mail, and you would wait for the letters, and, um, and so I was kind of slow about it, but eventually uh, a friend of mine had an agent that was taking on new clients, and I sent her the book, and, and she's been my agent for over 20 years. Wow. So you had it done then at a certain point. You were just kind of hoping to right. get some traction. Right. So I finished it, sent it to, to the agent. She took it on. And then she sent that book out over a period of a year. So, And I think it got maybe 25 rejections before it was finally accepted uh, by an imprint at, at Penguin Random House. So, I mean, that's that's a success story, but it's got to be fairly unpleasant along the way, right? Well, you know, it wasn't quite as bad as that because it was – because you have an agent, um, you know, she's kind of dealing with the business aspect of it. And um, 
I remember getting a, a like a, a manila envelope full of the rejection letters because at that time they instead of sending emails they would send you actual letters and so it felt kind of fancy to get these <laughs> letters with New York editors you know and publishers on the letterhead and and people you know serious people actually taking the work seriously so um, so yeah, it was a drag to to not place it, but at the same time, it was nice to get the feedback. I guess there was a part of me that just didn't feel like it was going to happen anyway. You know, it didn't mm-hmm. I didn't I still didn't really have a sense of how realistic it was. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, so when it was accepted, that was especially <laughs> exciting. Well, I mean, is there a way to be realistic about the expectation there, or is it always just kind of like the right person is in the right mood at the right time and maybe happens to see it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's. Um, I mean, the agent, your agent should at least kind of have a sense of who's reading what, and and a lot of times they're working from relationships that they've already developed, and so that gives you an edge. Uh, but at the same time, it, yeah, I mean, there's there they're looking at so many books, and sometimes and you hear editors talk about like it's just overwhelming. Like there's so many good books that they end up losing because they just didn't have the time to really focus on it. So it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it does require a fair amount of persistence. So you started teaching writing after you got the book published, right? Um, it was quite a few years after that. Quite a few years? Okay. I actually started working as, uh, as an adjunct about, so the book came out in 2002 and then I started at UNL in 2006. Okay. Worked as an adjunct and did freelance, and then uh, finally a job <laughs> opened up in like 2012 or 2011, and uh, and I got that then, and then so I've been on the professorial faculty since. So I mean, because it's such a difficult market, I mean we sort of have, we have like two parallel difficult markets here, right? So there's how to become a successful writer, but then also teaching in MFA programs is its own difficult market. I mean, how how does that influence the way that you teach students who are, you know, coming into, I mean, I don't know if it's maybe even gotten more difficult to find jobs since when you actually got yours, but like, that's got to be kind of weighing on you as you figure out how to actually give them something that's valuable, but not sort of just overly hopeful. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think um, for a lot of our students, especially like in the graduate program, this is just really a part of the professionalization process. And so they're, to a certain degree, buying some time and they're uh, they're immersed in a creative environment, and so ideally, some fr- from that experience, and we do try to help them make connections in the business and set them up with agents and that sort of thing. And so, ideally, by the time they they've graduated, they are better set at least. But yeah, it's uh, it, nonetheless, it's it's very uncertain, and um, some people publish their work and some don't, and others only write one book and decide that's all they need to write. And so it's a, it's a very diverse experience for so many writers. And, I mean, so do you think that people, is there some such a thing as natural talent? I mean, I assume that the schooling gives you a better understanding of craft, structure, and market that you'll, you know, how to make something commercial, right? But, like, do you think people are just born writers or not writers? I don't. I mean, I think, and, and partly I think it's because so much hinges on taste, personal taste and opinion. And so... Uh, so, and you, and you hear those stories too of the book that gets rejected by 30, 40, <laughs> 50 editors over the years and then finally lands and becomes a bestseller, you know, and, and, and even the publishing marketplaces, uh, you, you have anyone from somebody who's on the bestseller list and yet considered a complete hack, you know, <laughs> publishing uh, some book every six months or something and then just, uh, you know, bringing in the riches uh, and then the more, quote-unquote, serious writers who are spending more time thinking about every sentence. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's a curious we, – we think about it and talk about it like it's all just this one thing, you know, and then here's how you write a book, and then you write it this way, and this is what happens. And if it doesn't happen, then you weren't meant to be or the book wasn't good. Or, but that, none of that really pertains in any realistic way. That's what, so it's also nebulous. I don't know. <laughs> right? Well, and that's why the persistence matters. I mean, yeah. it, it is a matter of getting the book to the right person at the right time um, uh, or not. I mean, th- there is also the possibility that it, it, it won't happen. And, so, and that's a hard thing to really gauge, and, and, and it's hard to stay committed to mm-hmm. the task. Did you ever struggle with keeping committed with persisting? I don't think I did, per se. Um, 
you could get dis- it was certainly disappointing, and and it did take quite a few years after graduate school, like I was saying, to actually get the book published. And I get rejected by editors at literary journals, editors at publishers. I was rejected by agents, and so the. Uh, but you know, it's it, at the same time it was uh, is work that I cared about. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the some people will talk about it, like it's. The people who are going to do it are the ones who would do it for free. And it sounds like writing, you know, you, you do do it for free or you lose money on it until at some point maybe you don't, right? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, – if you don't like writing or if it feels like a chore, then I don't know why I don't know why you do it. I mean, because I, I, you hear people talk about it. It's like, well, it's – it's. I mean, I, I, I know one writer who likened it to factory work. You know, you, you have to sit down at the typewriter whether you want to or not and, and – and churn it out, and <laughs> I'm not sure why why you would do that instead of doing other things that are more uh, reliable. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that Dorothy Parker quote. Uh, I like having written, not writing. Yeah, <laughs> which I think a lot of people can you know relate to. Like, oh yeah, the accomplishment is is right, exciting. Maybe right. every day is not so much. Right. I mean, I I personally prefer the writing process and just getting into that creative space and and not having any opinion or, or you know or, or hearing any thoughts on it as as it's actually coming together and I write it the way I wanted to write it and then yeah once once you reach a conclusion that's when I kind of feel like uh, now I have to figure out really how to shape it and how it's going to work I'm talking today with Timothy Shafford about his new book, The Perfume Thief, which is available wherever you get books. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Post with the hashtag Riverside Chats or call in with what issues on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. We'll continue my conversation with Timothy Shafford after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstreams Communications Director Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstreams Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstreams Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstreams and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstreams crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstreams everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. Also, remember, we're trying out a new feature here, a kind of letter to the editor where you can call in about what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave us a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. I'm talking today with Timothy Shafford, a professor and author of the new book, The Perfume Thief, which is available wherever you get books. The Perfume Thief follows Clementine, a 72-year-old con artist in Nazi-occupied France, pulling off one last scheme when recruited to steal the recipe book of a now-missing famous Parisian perfumer. Shafford's previous books include The Swan Gondola, The Coffins of Little Hope, and The Phantom Limbs of the Rollo Sisters. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, so you were drawn to historical fiction, and you say you don't necessarily write based on your personal experiences so much. I'm sure that bleeds in to some extent. But what was it about historical fiction that made sense for you? Um, I think uh, I, I was just uh, – the first historical 
fiction I wrote was The Swan Gondola, which was set in the Omar World's Fair of 1898. And I was just really fascinated by uh, the world at the time, you know, and what I was reading, what I was seeing, and all the strangeness of, of 1890s Omaha, and so many uh, amazing stories, and so many curious uh, newspaper articles that you could find. So, I, so once I fell into that world, then I became uh, that became the thing that I wanted to read all the time was history and uh, and archives and old newspaper articles and old magazines and and uh, historical biographies. So, I mean, is it part of the inspiration process then? You just consume a lot of that, and there are probably various details that give you some idea or maybe link to some other idea you've had, and that starts to get it all in motion? Yeah, I mean, when I was writing The Perfume Thief, I didn't know anything about uh, 1941 Paris. I knew nothing at all. And 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 so uh, so I, I had to f- – so among the things I read were, like, guidebooks to Paris from the 20s and 30s because I wanted to get a sense of – what the people of Paris would have been losing in terms of you know, what, with those deprivations, how much was gone, and what 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 was the spirit of the city before the occupation, and so uh, and so from that I kind of drew my sense of the city and the conflicts of the characters, and then and then yeah read read a lot of of contemporary reportage at the time and as well as reflection in years past to get a sense of um, you know, whether the story might be or what unique uh, perspective I could bring to a story that's been told before. Well, and you've been interested in the 40s since you were in high school, apparently. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, I think reflects back that period of, of filmmaking as, as always, I've always enjoyed. So, I mean, were there films that inspired The Perfume Thief? I'm sure there were. I mean, I think sometimes the characters talk like <laughs> old movie characters, um, but uh, I didn't have anything specific in mind. Okay. But um, but I certainly kind of picture those smoky cabaret scenes uh, in black and white. Yeah. Well, it's kind of interesting, and I imagine it would. It took a while to figure out how the tone needed to work. Maybe not, but like you know, you're sort of dealing with some of the most heavy things that have happened in you know, recent history anyway. Uh, and some of that's kind of adjacent to what's going on. Some of it's kind of in the background, but it certainly looms over the whole book. Uh, but then you have this very delightful character who's telling the story, who's witty from the very first page. And there's all this, you know, the fun you can have with the main character, uh, but in sort of this difficult, uh, you know, this difficult time period, just in a lot of ways. So how did you find a tone that would work, that would be readable, but also have that seriousness, you know, be presented in a respectful way? Well, very carefully. <laughs> I mean, and that's part of what the book's about. And so the narrator is reflecting throughout on practically every page on like how do we keep going, how do we um, persevere, and um, how do we go about our lives and still enjoy what we can enjoy, surrounded by all the horror that we see happening around us as the city's taken away. And so, um, and so, and the more I read about from historical perspectives, from people who were living through it, uh, that was something that they were confronting themselves. And so so it was a matter of, of wanting to richly describe the world in a way that's entertaining uh, for a reader or entertaining even for myself as I'm writing it, and, and also uh, being mindful of, of exactly what the situation was. I mean, I did write it in first-person present tense. And so to a certain degree, I was thinking then of the narrator not really knowing all that's to come. So in 1941, she still, she doesn't yet know the extent to which the war will uh, will involve the world and, um, and the extent to which the Nazis are um, exterminating and, and, and capturing and arresting Jews and Romania and and homosexuals, and so it's something that uh, uh, so that uh, allowed the narrator to be a little more of the moment, I guess. But then you also the reader has an extra tension added that the character does not. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, what you're describing, I mean, so sort of like the how do you how do you keep going when everything's falling apart around you? That certainly feels like a contemporary anxiety I mean, in a lot of ways. <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, I think that um, I think the story does actually 
and I guess I should say that the historical research was eerily parallel to to what was going on in our own world to a certain degree. So, um, I, and so, yeah. So I I feel like I was perhaps drawn to those parallels as I was writing. What were some of the parallels that surprised you? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, I mean, I think it's just the spirit of the people, and um, and the ultimately the optimism in the face of horror, and um, and the the fact that they did still make music, they did still make art, they did still commit to um, the day to day of it, you know, and and so so I can sit here and think, oh, well, how could they have? just gone on with their lives when their neighbors were being arrested or people were being taken out of the city and, or, and losing their property. And But then you think, well, we do it today. You know, there are horrible things going on in the world and in our own country. And nonetheless, we we want to, to be compassionate, but at the same time, um, there's only so much pain and agony <laughs> that we can fully absorb, I guess. Yeah, well, it's it's something where you, you've talked a fair amount about how writing for you seems to be kind of an escape in some ways, but this is almost it's like a it's a reflection almost, right? I mean, I, th- I think a lot of writing probably is that way, where it's an escape in the sense that you have a different kind of set of problems, right? So you're, you're still sort of your brain is still expressing what your brain was probably thinking about in one way or another, but you're putting it now into this calculation of plot and right. what will be interesting to read and you know the the historical research, right? Yeah. And the plot is always a tricky thing, right? Because you don't want it to be dumb, <laughs> and uh, but you don't want it to be distracting. And of, of all the books I've written, this is probably the one with with the most plot, I guess, or the, or the, the thread that carries through. I mean, it's more of a, a what happens next kind of book than my others. And so at one time, the Nazis were after something entirely different than they are ultimately in the final draft. And so... That was also a process uh, when working with my editor when she decided, well, let's not have them go after this. Figure something else out. <laughs> and so that was a matter of going back into the book, going back into the history, and which actually led to really fascinating discoveries that I was um, excited to be able to incorporate into the book. That's got to be kind of a big headache, though. That's, that's a lot to rework, I imagine. Again, it's not um, – I feel lucky to be able to do it, <laughs> and I feel lucky to have that kind of attention from people who are um, interested in helping the book find readers. Did you have an interest in perfume before the book? You know, I, I not to the extent that I do now, certainly. But uh, yeah, I've always been I've, I've been fascinated with perfume as a product, probably more so than actually the the scent itself, but like the object of luxury and what it represents to people and and how it's packaged and how it's sold and bottles and the art of it and, and the advertising. And so that's another thing that fascinated me about going back into the Vogue archives is not just the articles, but also the advertisements and and what the, the perfume was meant to convey if you mm-hmm. wore it or if you purchased it. Well, it's interesting because it is, it's not something you can't actually smell, I guess, or see, but it, it, it's such a sensory thing that it's got to be sort of difficult to describe smells. Like I sometimes, even when I look at a candle, it's just sort of like I, I get what the words mean on this candle, but I don't know that I could have ever said that's what it smells like. Oh, it's, it's it, you know, I don't even like, you know, it's like uh, I, have, I have a candle right now. It's like Mountain Lodge. It's like, I don't, I don't know what's in there. I don't know what that's supposed to be. But so it was, was it difficult for you to figure out how to describe that in a way that meant something to readers? Absolutely. I mean, it's if you describe how something looks, then the reader can picture it. But it, you know, a smell smells like itself. I mean, it's like it's it's. So you have to rely a lot on metaphor, uh, you know, and to, to liken it to something else. You can say, "Oh, it smells like a rose," but that doesn't really stimulate the imagination right. for the reader like you want it to. So, and so, yeah. So it, it was a matter of trying to figure out. Also, since she is a thief, I also had to figure out like, well, what would she steal, and how, how lucrative would that be, and how would you make a how would you be a career criminal stealing perfume? Um, so that led me to want to figure out rare scents, you know, things that might be hard for someone to come by but um, but has a kind of captivating essence. So um, so that so that became part of the, the writing process too so that I didn't have to spend a lot of time trying to describe how things smelled but how rare they were. Mm-hmm. 
Were there other perfume thief stories that you came across in, in the historical record? As I was writing it, I didn't really so much, but I did. Um, I did just finish an article for an online magazine called Crime Reads, where they uh, uh, asked about perfume thieves in history. And so at that point, I did actually go into the archive. I did go into the New York Times archive and newspapers.com and, and typed in, you know, perfume thief and perfume stolen and, and uh, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. But it, it was funny because um, as a concept, it was something that newspapers seemed to enjoy batting around every once in a while. So they could say in the headlines, well, you know, they're, they're on the scent or, you know, <laughs> or, or, you know, the, the perfume thief stinks as a you know as a thief get caught you know whatever these were things you were you were not going to do <laughs> right, right exactly but um, but it, in amongst all of those articles I did find a couple of examples of people who were just motivated by perfume like this one guy was before the judge and he's like I just. I steal it because I love it. <laughs> and so I'd love to know more about him, but there's just the one little article from like 1930 or something. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Timothy Shefford about his new book, The Perfume Thief, which is available wherever you get books. Well, again, I think one of the things that interested me so much about the book was the way, I kind of talked about tone already, but it seems like you're playing with a lot of elements of genres. You're maybe not, I mean, it's not committed to, like, when you think about a story about a thief, you maybe think it's going to be some kind of, like, noir sort of thing. But you're sort of bouncing through a lot, and it seems like you're probably drawing from a lot of different influences to make this. I mean, when you put together a book, are you conscious of, I want to do something that's got elements of World War II or the Holocaust, but then also I want it to be, like, a, a thief. I want to have this element. I want it to be funny, you know, have, you know, elements of queer, you know, history in it. I mean, I don't know. I guess... Everybody's sort of drawing in a lot, but these feel like sort of disparate elements that I haven't seen put together in this way. So how, how did all of that come together for you? Well, I took a ton of notes. I have a little blue notebook that's just full of everything that I thought was interesting that I wrote down. And so, yeah, so there was the process of learning about the city and learning about the occupation and the war, and um, but also the process of just identifying those things that seemed to connect in interesting ways. And so... Um, so drawing connections between the different fascinations uh, related to perfume or related to entertainment, related to fashion, and looking for interesting and dynamic connections that would actually then propel the character through the story. And so I didn't really intend on writing a World War II novel. I mean, that was never my intention. But as I was thinking about this really emerged from just the concept of, of a perfume thief and me wondering about like, well, have there been any perfume thieves and, and what would that entail and what would you steal? And, and, and so just trying to figure out all the various possibilities, all the various ways that she might make a living off of that and why she would make a living off of that. Um, and so that sent me looking in all sorts of different directions. I mean, Google Books is actually an amazing resource, and you can just get lost for hours following all those different paths. And, um, yeah, and like like I said, the Vogue archive. And, and so you just type in a few words and then uh, just sorting through all kinds of stuff. And sometimes you find nothing. I mean, sometimes you just then, you, you think you're going to find something, and there's just nothing, and then eventually you stumble into something else. But, um, but yeah, like uh, the the butterfly scents that are in the book actually was based on research of, of a lepidopterist who was interested in the particular scents of, of butterflies, and they identified it in ways that we would recognize. They said, well, this smelled like, um, you know, butterscotch, or this smells like roses. And, and whether or not it actually did, I mean, I don't, I don't know. That, <laughs> that, that seemed like a, a lot of imagination. But, um, but it really, I think, spoke to the, the characters that um, I was developing and the kinds of things that they would be um, kind of perversely um, preoccupied with. Well, and so has the book come out far enough into the pandemic for you to do a book tour of any kind, like a, outside of just Zoom? Well, um, we are doing some Zoom, but I'm doing a few in-person things in, in Omaha and Lincoln. And so it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, they, it, they, we're still cautious and all of that, but I'm all vaccinated and I'm ready to kind of get out of the house. <laughs> so, what are some of the events you have? Uh, August 3rd, there's a, a, a book launch at the Bookworm. Um, and that's at 6 p.m. And then uh, Francie and Finch in Lincoln 
later on in August, and and I've got some uh, online things set up with with various bookstores, like one in San Diego, and and uh, and and where I'll be in conversation with other writers. Do you like book tours? I do. Yeah, I mean it's fun, and it's uh, it's you. It's <laughs> I don't know how to say it, but like um, like meeting meeting readers is is a fascinating and uh, kind of anxiety producing <laughs> and and really thrilling opportunity. And booksellers, when I love booksellers, and so uh, so you 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 work in solitude for all this time, and you're. You write. You get the book the way you want. You want it, and and then and then you hear what people think of it, or <laughs> you have to answer questions about it, and and so, and so it goes from being this highly, you know, this extremely personal experience to uh, just between me and the material to one that's very public. Do you find in that public phase that you were able to understand why you were drawn to the material in the first place in a way that you're not really as you're actually writing it? Oh, sometimes I learn things along the way, you know, or some people will pick something up from the book that they'll share with me and, and uh, or they'll ask a question that makes me think about the book in a new way. So it, it, it does become that it becomes so, a social process that does end up enhancing the book and sometimes informing how I write the next book, too. Well, yeah. I mean, do you think about the body of work where sort of now that you've written several, I mean, you can kind of look back and see, oh, OK, I kind of keep gravitating to these sorts of ideas. Uh, and then I don't know if that then influences where you want to go from there, because some people either embrace that. Actually, I was going to bring up as far as sort of like uh, kind of funny things that are on the periphery of ugly World War II stuff. You got like the Grand Budapest Hotel. And Wes Anderson's a guy who clearly has uh, embraced his body of work 100%. He's like, right. I'm only going to make a Wes Anderson movie, <laughs> right. and you will know it in every frame. And some people sort of are like, no, I want to branch out and push myself in new directions. How do, I mean, how do you feel about that? Um, I mean, I, I do sometimes think – I'll do some – I'll sometimes have an idea where I'll think – Oh, how interesting that would be, and and that would be completely different from anything I've ever written. And I don't even know exactly how I would do it. And I want to. It allows me to play with structure or takes do research into a totally different direction. Um, but then at the same time, it's kind of like, well, is that what people want to read <laughs> from me? So I do. There is a little bit of business that resides in the back of my head where I do feel conscious of of well, how, is this the right next thing and so it's so I, I definitely want to avoid writing the same novel over and over again so I'm always looking for new things and but to a certain degree it, it does end up being kind of like Wes Anderson <laughs> I think when you when you pick it up you, you get what you're expecting <laughs> if you've read them before do you have an idea of what you want to do next yeah I have like a handful of, of ideas um, but I I, I over the last couple of weeks, I've really been hammering out one in particular. So I think that's probably the one I'm going to write next. Are you ready to talk about that at all, or is it secret for now? Um, I don't know that it's secret, but it's uh, it's kind of a combination between Titanic and the, uh, that film Jules and Jim, oh, the, okay. the, the three friends, and um, and and The Great Gatsby, and it's it's 1920s Hollywood and World War One and. Um, and so and it's 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 candy and cocktails and uh, so I, I think of it as kind of like a cross between Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and uh, um, and yeah Titanic like that <laughs> that the terrifying boat sequence in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory <laughs> right, right. that thing haunted me as a kid yeah, yes that is pretty scary <laughs> <laughs> oh man okay so that's a lot of uh, once again it's kind of you're drawing a lot of different sort of genres different elements different influences so that that's interesting so I mean you probably had a list like that with the Perfume Thief at some point right yeah yeah I mean you you, you kind of take all these notes and think of all these possible directions and some fall to the wayside and some you embrace and some you can kind of fit together. And then sometimes you're surprised by, I mean, I, I also have this theory that if there's something that you want to find from the historical record, if you look hard enough, you will find it. <laughs> like if you want to find evidence of, of, of something that's um, going to link the things that you need to link, um, so I, I do think it just sometimes shows up. <laughs> well, I think I heard candy in that list, and my producer, Courtney, tells me I have to ask you about these candy wrapper dresses. <laughs> so I, the only question I come up with with that is, uh, what, so what's, what's the deal there? <laughs> well, um, when the pandemic, uh, 
when we when we were on the hard shutdown, um, I had these these kind of these Venki. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the Venki Italian candies, but oh, yeah. they're they're beautifully wrapped, mm-hmm. and um, and so each one's individually wrapped, and so they, they kind of suggest gowns, <laughs> and so and I've and I've used candy and art before, and but um, and I have done I've, I've done collage with candy wrapper, uh, but I decided to start doing movie stars every day uh, of the pandemic. I was going to do a, a movie star, and and which meant. Fashioning a <laughs> little dress out of a wrapper, and then drawing a little caricature uh, of the movie star, and so I did that every day for a long time. I, I eventually fell out of the habit, but I still do them every now and again. So, who were some of the movie stars? I started with Myrna Loy um, from The Thin Man, and I've done Vivian Lee, and uh, I've done um, contemporary movie stars. I did like this last week. I was doing the 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 supermodels on the con red carpet at the, at the film <laughs> festival. And so um, so I, I've, I've done like uh, over 300 of them now. So, wow. Yeah. It's just, uh, it's, you know, something you think you'll keep doing just to add to, uh, you know, this, this new body of work? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I love, I love drawing. So, and it's, and, and people seem to enjoy them. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exciting. It's, it's fun to see all the different things that you're able to do to, you know, like we talked at the beginning that you were always sort of drawing and writing and figuring out just what are some ways you can both, I don't know, we talked about you can, you can escape in one sense, you can sort of reflect on things in another sense, but also it seems like you're having some fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, um, and it's, a, it's a place where you can kind of, like especially drawing, you just escape into it. Like if you're, if you're if I'm, I'm hyper focused on because I'll, I'll bring up a, a Google image, uh, you know, com- uh, what do you call it when you do the Google image and you have all these faces, and so you're trying to figure out, oh, okay, well, so I'm doing this actress, I, I like her eyes in this picture and her <laughs> nose in this one, so it becomes a highly concentrated <laughs> experience. <laughs> um, but and and with writing too, you know, once you get into the get into it, you are kind of in a trance. So. It becomes a bit of an escape. Well, I really appreciate you taking time to talk to me. Uh, when the when this airs, the perfume thief will be available. Is there a place you want people to go to get it? Uh, I, your your favorite local independent bookstore is where you should go to get. It. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Yeah, thank you so much. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos, And our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. Also, remember, we're trying out a new feature here, a kind of letter to the editor where you can call in about what Omaha issue is on your mind this week. Leave us a brief voicemail at 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.